Well, this week a video went viral, and I wonder if you saw it. It's the video of, of Randall Margraves in an Eaton County, Michigan courtroom. Randall's the father of three girls, and tragically, all three of those girls were sexually abused by the now disgraced U.S. gymnastics doctor Larry Nasser. And while two of his daughters were giving statements detailing their own abuse, Randall looked over to Dr. Nasser only to see him shaking his head, dismissing these allegations arrogantly that the daughters had been recounting in their own story. And so at this point, this father of three clad in jeans and his International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers sweatshirt, he got up, he stepped up, and he addressed the judge, and he said, quote, I would ask you, as part of this sentencing, to grant me five minutes in a locked room with this demon. The courtroom sort of froze, judge was taken back, to which she responded, you know I can't do that. He pressed, would you give me but one minute? The judge replied again, you know that's not how our justice system works. And at that, the grieving father leapt from behind the table and lunged violently at Larry Nasser. Pandemonium that ensued in the courtroom right before he was wrestled to the ground by, I think, three bailiffs, and he was then hauled off in handcuffs. Now, as a nation, we, we know we're founded on a rule of law. We know that we're not to pursue vigilante justice. But it may not come as much a surprise, you've been following the news, that as that video went viral, there was, in fact, an outpouring of support for this grieving father, support for Randall Margraves. Many called him a, a hero to fathers everywhere. One Twitter user and encouraged him to make a run for the presidency. They said he was clearly the only man in these divided times that could actually unite a nation. Even those who didn't condone his outbursts were volunteering to pay for any legal bills. There was a GoFundMe campaign that hit its limit, or I guess its goal, in, in mere minutes. It turns out even the county prosecutor's office, which I think had the ability to fine him, keep him in jail for 60 days, they said given the circumstances, they of course weren't going to press any charges. Now, we feel instinctively for the Father because we see, we hear, we experience the injustice of what happened to his girls. Right? Our souls sympathize with that Father's cry for judgment. But I wonder this morning if you can trust in a God who cries for judgment. Can you trust in a God who executes judgment? Because I think the funny thing is we're all quick to sympathize with Randall Margraves. But we can have a remarkably difficult time sympathizing with God. Right? Randall Margraves, his wrath, we say, yeah, that's justified. But God's against sin? Well, that's not very respectable of him. That's not very honorable of God. You know, we're not so interested in defending God. No one's really offering to pay his legal bills. 
Friend, why do you think that is? Why do you think that is? Well, I think that question brings us back to our study in the book of Amos. The Old Testament book of Amos, we've been in it the last few weeks, and I invite you to turn there now. We're going to be in chapter 7 through chapter 9, verse 10. So if you don't happen to have a Bible this morning, no fear, there in the seatbacks before you, you should have a red, a red Bible. You can find our passage this morning, page 769, page 769. And as you turn there, all right, if you're just joining us, Amos written in about 760 B.C., so we're in the days of Israel after a costly civil war. But Israel is undergoing a bit of a renaissance. So there's military superiority once again, economic prosperity, accompanied with that, all this religious activity, and that sort of peaked across the land. But if we look a bit closer, as Amos has been leading us to, look a bit closer into the life of Israel, the life of that northern kingdom Amos is preaching to, we know it's, it's actually all a sham, right? Worship is clearly just for show, the weak are oppressed, the rich live in luxury and sin with apparent impunity. So instead of Israel being distinct from the nations, set apart, she's just a mirror of the nations. And so God has called Amos to preach to his wayward people. And in chapters 1 and 2, we saw that all are accountable to God. Right? None can escape the judgment of God. Last week in chapters 3 to 6, we saw how presuming upon the favor of God makes us an enemy of God. Right? Presuming upon his favor makes us an enemy. That's what the Israelites were doing. And Amos wanted to disabuse them that because they were God's people, they could just sort of get a free pass when it comes to sin. Now last week, as we were in those chapters, the constant refrain, if you picked it up, chapter 3, chapter 4, chapter 5, was that refrain, hear this word. Hear this word. And yet it seems after all Amos is preaching from last week, Israel still didn't have ears to hear. And so the constant refrain in our chapters this morning, as we get into chapters 7 and 8 and 9, is this is what the Lord showed me. It's what he showed me. And we're going to see that expression five different times, introducing five different visions that God is going to give Amos. And I think the overall message of these five visions that mark up our chapters this morning is this. The wrath of God will fall upon the people of God who reject the word of God. So you're looking sort of for a summary of chapter 7 through 9, 10. It's basically that. The wrath of God will fall upon the people of God who reject the word of God. Again, that's the big picture. But as we get into these visions, I think we're going to find that these chapters really, they get to the heart of who God is. This book, yes, it's named after Amos, but make no mistake, this book of Amos is actually about God. It's a book about him. He's the main character. Thus, Amos reveals God to us, especially his character in judgment. And I think there are three things these five visions reveal particularly to us. In judgment, God is patient, he's just, and he's determined. And for all those faithful note takers, that's going to be our very simple outline this morning. In judgment, God is three particular things, three particular things we learn. He's patient, he's just, he's determined. All right, so to our first point, in judgment, God is patient. 
He's patient. So if you've got your Bibles open, look down with me. Chapter 7, verse 1. This is what the Lord God showed me. Behold, he was forming locusts when the latter growth was just beginning to sprout. And behold, it was the latter growth after the king's mowings. And when they, referring to locusts, when they had finished eating the grass of the land, I said, O Lord God, please forgive. How can Jacob stand? He is so small. And the Lord relented concerning this. It shall not be, said the Lord. This is what the Lord showed me. Behold, the Lord God was calling for a judgment by fire. And it devoured the great deep and was eating up the land. And I said, O Lord God, please cease. How can Jacob stand? He is so small. And the Lord relented concerning this. This also shall not be, said the Lord God. We're going to stop right there. Right? Here we're introduced to the first two visions of our chapters. And we're given a glimpse in the very first one, a glimpse sort of in this laboratory in heaven. And there is God, and he's sort of creating, he's forming this agricultural weapon of mass destruction. Right? These locusts. And we think of locusts like little locusts. What's, what's the big deal? But these locust swarms, right, they could be up to 500 square miles, right? 80 billion locusts consuming more than their weight in plants each day. So they could clear an area the size of northwest Arkansas in a mere weekend and move on. And when they cleared it, they would leave nothing left. It would be nothing but a gray and desolate and barren landscape such that, right, with nothing to eat, flocks of cattle and sheep are left to starve, right? They're there decaying in the dust. It's an apocalyptic image. That's what we're meant to see, which is why Amos cries out, oh God, please forgive. How can, how can Jacob stand? He is so small. And what do we read? Well, the Lord relented. And then we find that next vision, beginning in verse four. Judgment by fire. It devoured up the great deep, was eating up the land. Which just begs us to ask, I mean, what kind of fire is this that Amos sees? A fire with the energy to sort of vaporize entire seas, to consume everything in its path, right? On land or on sea, it consumes it all, right? A fire like this, whatever he sees, it defies our own comprehension. Right? We got nothing in our nuclear arsenal with the kind of energy to, to vaporize seas like whatever Amos witnesses. And yet again, Amos cries out, O Lord God, please cease. And again, the Lord relents. Now that word relent sometimes will cause us some confusion. You know, we're not to think, when we read that word, we're not to think that suddenly God was sort of overwhelmed with anger. And thus he sort of lashes out at his people in this fit of uncontrollable rage, kind of like Randall Margraves did to Larry Nasser. But you know, Amos is there, He's sort of like the bailiff, and he's there, and he's happily sort of leaning on God and trying to sort of pray God into a better mind. Well, that's not the image we're supposed to have as we, as we read this. Nor is God changing his mind in these verses. And if you remember a while back, we were in 1 Samuel, and we came across a verse in 1 Samuel 15, verse 29. He who is the glory of Israel does not lie or change his mind, for he is not a man that he should change his mind. So when God relents here, he's not changing his mind, 
right? What's changing is the clarity of Amos' own perception. Because you see, God is personal. He, he leads and he teaches by interacting with his people. And these visions were given to Amos so that Amos and the people might better understand God's patience. They might understand his patience. That's the purpose of these two visions. They're to highlight God's long-suffering patience with his people. So both visions graphically depict what Israel deserved in her sin. Right? They deserve to be utterly consumed by God. Right? We all deserve that in our own sin. But Amos cries out and God relents. Right? He doesn't proceed in judgment he is yet even still patient. It's the very reminder of Ezekiel thirty-three eleven. Say to them as I live, declares the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways, for why will you die, O house of Israel? Right, God takes no delight in the death of the wicked, and these visions were given so that they might be shaken out of their own spiritual stupor, like revived spiritually before it's too late. You know, so to my Christian friend here this morning, I want you to notice Amos's own response to these visions. Notice how that response, what he, what he witnessed, his response was, was to be driven to his knees. It drove him to prayer. Even for these in the northern kingdom who would have been his enemies. Now listen, tonight some of you may be watching the Super Bowl and maybe you've got your own sort of favorite team. You've, you care a lot. You know, maybe there's your defensive end at some point in the game and he shakes, right? His, he shakes his offensive, you know, lineman, what have you, and he plows at that running back in the backfield, slams him, drills him to the turf, right? You jump up, you cheer, you shout, Right, your guy got him, got the opposing team, victory over the enemy. But I just want you to notice again for Amos how God's overwhelming judgment, it's not a cause for joyful celebration. It's a cause for tearful intercession. He's not celebrating like we might with a play tonight, sort of hands high, leaping off the couch, no, but he drops to his knees, his head bowed low, right? He's interceding for his people. My Christian friend, I wonder, how do you intercede for the lost? How do you intercede for the lost? How do you pray for your enemies? Do you even pray for your enemies? You know, how often do you might, might you plead with God that they would turn and they would live? Recognize even the men of the likes of Larry Nasser, or you know, prison, if you're unaware, it has its own hierarchy for crimes. And, and those crimes committed, sex abuse against children, the lowest of the low, the most despised, they're at the bottom of the list. And yet, whatever Larry Nasser might suffer in this life, that pales in comparison to what, apart from Christ, he will suffer in the next. Right, Hell is not the absence of God, it is the presence of God in his full and righteous wrath. It's these visions that drove Amos to his knees. Friend, if we understood rightly what awaits all in their unrepentant sin, if we saw something of what Amos witnessed in these own visions, 
Friend, we wouldn't wish that fate upon anyone. It would drive us to our knees. We would be praying even for our most reviled enemies. In judgment, God is patient. But he's not just patient. I want you to see he's also just. He's also just. And that's going to bring us to our second point. In judgment, God is, he's just. So look down with me to your third vision, to the third vision, chapter 7, verse 7. This is what he showed me. Behold, the Lord was standing beside a wall built with a plumb line, with a plumb line in his hand. And the Lord said to me, Amos, what do you see? And I said, a plumb line. And the Lord said, behold, I am setting a plumb line in the midst of my people Israel. I will never again pass by them. The high places of Isaac shall be made desolate. The sanctuaries of Israel shall be laid waste. And I will rise against the house of Jeroboam with the sword. Now listen, there may be a few architects among us who know something of what a plumb line is. You know, it's just made up of a long cord and at the bottom of that cord is a plummet. You know, off to some kind of weighted object. And the idea is you would hold this up alongside a wall to see if the wall was straight, right? If it, if it was parallel with the plumb line. So as God sets this plumb line before his own people, he's saying to Israel, I'm going to see if you are sort of true vertical. Are you as upright as you declare yourself to be? And given Israel's own sins, as we've seen, we know this vision is to contrast God's moral perfection, right? His plumb line against the moral corruption, against the crookedness and the waywardness and the, the jagged ways that marked Israel. You know, we even get our word crook in English, you know, for this idea of being crooked, right? Not being straight, not according to the plumb line. Israel is that crooked wall, and God is saying that wall must be torn down. That's what's meant in verse 9. The high places of Isaac shall be made desolate. The sanctuaries of Israel shall be laid to waste. God's judgment is going to target their religious shrines, their high places. Because why? Because it's their relationship with God that's out of order. You know, when God judges, he's not leaving them to wonder why. He speaks to them, he then shows them visions, and then lest they still be unclear, he attacks the seat of their sin to show like, this is why judgment is coming. It's because your relationship with me is broken. You have forsaken it. And here God's word confronts us. Because right? what do we love to do? We love to measure ourselves by our own subjective standard. And when we fail to meet that standard, whatever it might be, we figure we can just perhaps lower the bar, change the standard, right? We want anything but God's standard because God, perfectly straight, flawless, impeccable. Friend, ask yourself this morning, just look inside your own heart, what's the plumb line of your life? What's the plumb line of your own life? What's your standard of morality? Does it shake and turn and bend and weave according to the, the whims of culture? You know, I was having a conversation with a, a neighbor this week, and he was suggesting that each person was free to have their own sort of standard of morality, so long as it was beneficial. But, right, beneficial for whom? Beneficial for whom? Who gets to even define what's beneficial? 
What about when competing moralities collide? How do we then discern and make judgments? The reality is most of us, most of us are happy with God so long as his opinions line up to ours. So often how it works. We're great with God so long as his opinions line up with ours. Because we don't want a a God that might bother us and and agitate us and, and upset us. Which is why this vision becomes so offensive. It's so offensive. Because God sets the plumb line. It's his standard. His character is fixed. It is unchanging. It is perfect. You know, as you read through Amos... This title, the Lord God, we've already read it a number of times. You get it about over 20 times in the book. It's also translated the Lord, the sovereign God. But over half those 20 times are in these two and a half chapters. And the point is unmistakable. That's not an accident. It's to reinforce the absolute sovereign right of God to establish his own standard and then to implement that standard. To impress it upon his people. Right? Who is this God? Look forward to me. Chapter 9, verse 5. Who is this God? 9, 5. The Lord God, the sovereign God, the Lord of hosts. He who touches the earth and it melts, and all who dwell in it mourn, and all that rises like the Nile and sinks again like the Nile of Egypt, who builds his upper chambers in the heavens and founds his vault upon the earth, who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out upon the surface of the earth. The Lord is his name. Friends, before verses like that, any illusion that we have of our own personal autonomy melts before this God of unparalleled sovereignty. He owns all, he determines all. Now, we might like to think we can change this God, right? make him maybe a, a bit less holy, make him a bit more indulgent, maybe a bit less exacting, a bit more accommodating. But we don't define God. That's the point of the plumb line. He defines us, and he measures us according to his standard. He gets to call the shots, and it's that authority that Israel rejects. It's that authority that we all naturally reject in our sin, an authority that we rejected going all the way back to our parents in the garden. But look back with me to the way in which Israel rejects this authority. Go back to chapter 7. Look at verse 10. Amos is given this vision of the plumb line, and then Amaziah, the priest of Bethel, sent to Jeroboam, king of Israel, saying, Amos has conspired against you in the midst of the house of Israel. The land is not able to bear all his words. For thus Amos has said, Jeroboam shall die by the sword, and Israel must go into exile away from his land. And Amaziah said to Amos, O seer, go. Flee away to the land of Judah. Eat bread there. Prophesy there. But never again prophesy at Bethel. For it is the king's sanctuary, and it is a temple of the kingdom. Then Amos answered and said to Amaziah, I was no prophet nor a prophet's son. I was a herdsman, a dresser of sycamore figs. But the Lord took me from following the flock. And the Lord said to me, go, 
prophesy to my people Israel. Now, therefore, hear the word of the Lord. We're going to stop right there. Do you see what's happening? Amos is being explicitly clear, God through Amos, that that plumb line being laid down was God's own word. Amos had been preaching that word. And Amaziah, Israel's own priest, is going to have nothing to do with that word. In effect, you know, Amaziah, as he's saying in these verses, like, hey, hey, preacher boy, get out of here. Go down south where maybe someone will appreciate your hellfire and brimstone stuff, but we're tired of it. Right, go make your money there. Some Baptist church will hire you. You know, Amaziah, he's assuming he's talking to another prophet for hire. He assumed, he's assuming he's talking to someone like himself. He's never come face to face with the real thing, with one who doesn't give a lick about money. And I think the opposition Amos experiences, it reminds Christians of something important, a lesson born out here, a lesson born out through the scriptures, a lesson even born out in church history. And that is that the fiercest opposition often arises from those who claim God's name but won't live according to God's norms. So often the fiercest opposition that Christians face come from those who claim God's name but don't want to live according to his norms. You know, put another way, it's not those outside persecuting the truth, but it's those within who pervert it. They're the ones that present the greatest threat. Which is why I think in one of the most chilling passages of the book, God will exile his word from his people. So look forward with me to chapter 8, verse 11. Chapter 8, verse 11. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land. But he's not going to be talking about locusts here. Not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. They shall wander from sea to sea and from north to east. They shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, but they shall not find it. And in that day, the lovely virgins and the young men shall faint for thirst. Those who swear by the guilt of Samaria and say, as your God lives, O Dan, and as the way of Beersheba lives, they shall fall and never rise again. You see, in judgment, God is sending a famine upon the land. It's just a famine of his word. It's because Amos will die his contemporary, Hosea, Hosea will die as well, and there are going to be no prophets to replace them. And instead of hearing the cries of latter prophets, decades later, all the people will hear are the battle cries of the Assyrian army leading them off into exile. Friends, one of the greatest judgments of God is for the people of God to be denied the very words of God. It's one of the greatest judgments he can bring. Which is why we, as God's people, have to treasure every opportunity we have to sit under God's word, to learn from God's word. It's why when you rise in the morning, you don't reach first past your word and grab your phone and scroll through Instagram or, or check the morning news feeds. No, you leave that aside and you pick up that word and you read it and you treasure it. 
It's why when you're tired on Sunday morning, you're thinking, I don't really want to get up and go to church. I don't want to sit. I don't want to have to be around holy people, whatever it might be. If you knew my week, it's not the place for me to be. The Lord is saying it's exactly where you need to be, to be sitting under that word, to be hearing that word. Yes, it'll come right against you, and yet it will also lift you up. Words of judgment, yes, but words of grace that follow. It's why you need to treasure churches that preach the word, not churches that value programs over preaching, not preachers who are interested more in entertaining you than expositing the word. No, you want to listen and be at churches that value this word. Right? So there's nothing godly about long sermons. But if you just think about, if a sermon goes five minutes too long, really, what's the big deal? Is there a better place you could be, according to Amos? Well, there's no better place you could be than under God's word. Recognize any Israelite in Amos' day would have literally died to trade places with you. In fact, they were dying because they couldn't trade places with you. They had lost that word. You know, consider visiting our adult Bible fellowship hours. You know, there's one being taught right now on how do you read the Bible? How do you study it? How do you understand it? Nine o'clock in Heritage Hall. You know, for ladies, there are many Bible studies in the mornings throughout the week where you can be blessed by God's word, right? Treasure the word because as 8.13 makes clear, even those who have the brightest of futures have no future apart from this word. None at all. And yet because they have rejected the word of God, the wrath of God will fall upon the people of God. And that brings us to our third point. In judgment, God is determined. Make no mistake, he is determined. Look back, chapter 7. Look back to verse 16. Amaziah said, stop your preaching. And Amos has said, well, listen, it's not my preaching, it's the Lord's word. So get ready. You say, verse 16, do not prophesy against Israel. Do not preach against the house of Isaac. Therefore, thus says the Lord, your wife shall be a prostitute in the city. Your sons and your daughters shall fall by the sword. Your land shall be divided up with a measuring line. You yourself shall die in an unclean land, and Israel shall surely go into exile away from its land. Friends, that's gut-wrenching. I mean, if you read through these verses, I hope you read verse 17 of chapter 7, and you stopped and you said, oh my word, what is this? I mean, it's hard to even have a category for a God who is this big and this just and takes sin that seriously. You know, Amaziah, he wanted to see the word of God banished, and so God will banish him. Right? He wants to silence that word, well, he will silence Amaziah. Friends, to reject God's word so clearly is to reject God himself. The consequences could not be greater, especially amongst leaders, especially amongst Israel's leaders, which, friend, is just a good warning to us, to leaders in this body, to elders, or to those who would aspire to the office of elder, of you are not treasuring a love for God's word in your heart. Let this vision of Amaziah haunt you. But we see that same determination in chapter 8, verses 1 and 2. 
we come up to the fourth vision. We see that same expression, chapter 8, verse 1. This is what the Lord God showed me. Behold, a basket of summer fruit. He said, Amos, what do you see? And I said, a basket of summer fruit. We're like, what in the world is happening? Baskets of summer fruit. How do we understand this? Well, the point of that image is that Israel is ripe for the harvest. The summer of God's patience has run out. The expiration date has been reached. She may look secure. Israel may seem in full bloom, but the reality is she's about to be plucked. That's the image, which is why he continues. The end has come upon my people Israel. I I will never again pass by them. The songs of the temple shall become wailings in that day, declares the Lord. So many dead bodies. They are thrown everywhere. Silence. Those may be the most haunting verses in all of Amos. Because everywhere Amos looks, all he sees are bodies. There in the temple, they're not singing oceans. This isn't in the sweet by and by anymore. No, without any voices left to speak, all there is left in that temple is deafening silence. Why? Because of their contempt for the word. As you keep reading down verses 4 through verses 8, right? They profane the Sabbath in verse 5. They're going to swindle their own people with unjust balances, with false balances. They're going to even profit off their own people. They're going to enslave their own over a debt to the amount of a pair of flip-flops. That's what's happening in this middle part of chapter 8. All of these things, forbidden practices clearly laid out in God's word. And yet here again, we're reminded, as we've been reminded throughout this book, of God's deep concern for the needy. You know, the law has a lot to say about Israel's responsibility to the poor among them. Not to the poor Egyptian, not to the poor Amalekite, but to the poor Israelite. You know, so from Scripture, I understand that we as a body ought to be most concerned for the poor among us. Galatians 6.10, so then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially, you can translate it, that is, to those who are of the household of faith. Right? There's a priority the scriptures place upon meeting the needs of the poor in the body. Now that's not to say we shouldn't have a ministry like Second Mile, right? not at all. That's a great outreach to the community, great to try to meet the needs of the community. And yet if a member in this body is going through financial hardship, it's the responsibility of the congregation to gather around that member and meet the need, to care for them, to provide for them. Right? We show such compassion to the materially poor around us Because that's exactly the same kind of compassion that God has shown to us who have been spiritually poor. It was his message to Israel as they left Egypt. So to lack... I'm not sure what that is. Try that. So to lack a a care 
for there to be a sort of coldness and a, and a callousness towards one another, to think in our own hearts, you know, yeah, I, I know they're hurting, but they, they kind of brought it upon themselves. They really made some unwise choices. I mean, he did leverage his business an awful lot. We'll recognize if that's our approach, it doesn't just reveal that sort of we're cheap. It actually reveals we have a contempt for God. That we have a contempt for him. And yet God's determination and, and judgment is as heavy as it's been. It doesn't, it doesn't even stop here. Chapter 9, verse 1. We come to our last vision. The wording changes a little bit. I saw the Lord standing beside the altar. Stop right there. Just notice the progression of these visions. Notice in the first, Amos prays to God to forgive. He sees the vision. God forgive, God relents. The second great vision, oh God, stop, God relents. The third and the fourth vision of the plumb line and the, and the summer basket of fruit. Notice at this point, Amos isn't asking for forgiveness. He's not even asking anymore that God stop. Amos isn't making intercession anymore. You know, if Israel's own priests won't repent before God's word, what's the hope for all the people? Instead, we have this explicit denial in these visions, the third and the fourth, where God says, I will pass them by, i.e., I will spare them no longer. Chapter 7, 8. Chapter 8, verse 2. And so we come to this fifth and final vision, and notice God isn't even dialoguing with Amos anymore. He doesn't even bring him into the vision. He just puts it right before him. He puts it before him. Amos simply sees, and that progression is highlighting God's determination to judge his people. The time for talk, right? The time for negotiations, that's past. That time is ended. We're going to read in just a moment what happened, but just stop there. Friend, if you, if you come here this morning, and if you've come and you are content in your sin, and somehow you've gotten through this part of the message, and you're still somewhat content in your sin, sitting here thinking, yeah, I know, you know, someday I'll deal with it. Someday I'll deal with it. Whether it's sex or drunkenness or pot or passivity, I mean, whatever it might be, you're like, yeah, I'll get to it at some point. It's not the best time, but I will. Someday, sometime in the future, just not right now. I'll wait. There'll be another chance, another opportunity. Friend, I need you to see God, yes, he is gloriously the God of second chances, but not of infinite chances. Not of infinite chances. There is, in chapter 9, verse 1, an expiration date to God's patience. So, friend, don't presume upon the patience of God any longer. We read earlier, Romans 2, verse 4. Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Oh, friend, hear that again and repent now. Don't wait, turn now. Involve a friend, bring someone in with you who can talk with you, help hold you accountable. Don't wait, don't delay, because there may come a time when it will be too late. And it's too late now for Israel, because God is there at the altar in this final vision, 
the place where sacrifices are made, where one goes to find forgiveness. It's a place of mercy. The, the altar is an emblem of God's love. It's a symbol of his presence, his protection for his people. And yet what words come from his mouth? Chapter 9, verse 1, strike the capitals until the thresholds shake. Shatter them on the heads of all the people. And on those who are left of them, I will kill them with the sword. Not one of them shall flee away. Not one shall escape. If they dig into Sheol, from there shall my hand take them. If they climb up to heaven, from there I will bring them down. If they hide themselves on the top of Carmel, which is just a mountain with lots of caves, right? From there I will search them out and take them. If they hide from my sight at the bottom of the sea, from there I will command the serpent. It shall bite them. If they go into captivity before their enemies, there I will command the sword and it shall kill them. And I will fix my eyes upon them for evil and not for good. God is not leaving any confusion to Amos and to the hearers. And just to be clear, evil, that's not referring to moral evil. That word evil is broadly translated. It can mean harm. It can mean destruction. God is bent on them in their sin. Patience has run out for harm. So those capitals referenced back in 9-1, those are the tops of columns that support a roof. The thresholds are the bases. So the image is sort of like Samson there, right? Shaking until the whole structure comes crashing down on the people, right? So don't miss what's being depicted in 9-1. In these pagan temples, who's become the sacrifice? Israel herself. They become the sacrifice. And those who happen to escape, well, they've got nowhere to run, nowhere to hide, right? Two to four, they can burrow in the ground. They can try to build a bunker. Lord will get them. They can go up to the mountains, hide in caves. Lord will get them. They can, like, don scuba deer, go into the water. Like, the Lord will get them. They can even try to cheat death and go into foreign lands, become captives in another land, and the Lord God will still find them. There is no place for them to go, no place for them to hide, nowhere to run. They cannot escape this God. Remember, he alone is the sovereign one. It's coming. It's deserved. And there is nothing they can do to stop it. Friends, these chapters, they bring us rightly to the end of ourselves. Like a fugitive on the run, right? We feel cornered, no place to go, no place to turn. If you feel that same corner sort of nature in your own sin, what I want you to see, what Amos is crying out for you to see is actually you don't have to be the sacrifice. God has left you a sacrifice. He has made a sacrifice. Look back, chapter 8. On that great day, chapter 8, verse 9. On that day, declares the Lord, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. When was that? Matthew 27. The sixth hour, noon, darkness covered the land as Jesus stood upon a cross. The darkness that reflected the darkness of the people's own hearts, so dark that nature would even mourn and hide its face. And yet in that moment, Jesus would be the sacrifice. He would take their place for those who have nowhere to run, nowhere to hide, Nowhere to go, they point to Jesus, the one who on the cross bore the wrath of God for sinners. Even in chapter 8, verse 9, we're being led to look to the promised one who will die in the place and in the stead of sinners, bearing God's right wrath against sin. Oh, friend, we all need that forgiveness. Apart from Christ, we are the sacrifice. 
our lives will be taken. But he died so that that wouldn't have to happen. He himself was a sacrifice for sin. And all he calls us to do is to turn from our sin, to see the right justice of God in judgment against all sin, see that Jesus bore it and we look there and we turn there and we say, praise God. You know, I open with that question. Can you trust a God who executes judgment? You know, Randall Margraves apologized for his violent outburst afterwards, you know, in that courtroom. But in that apology, he also gave these very sobering words. He said, I can only hope that when the day comes, Larry Nasser, when he has ended his days on earth, that he will be escorted to one of the deepest, darkest, hottest pits in hell there is. Now, you can judge the man for his statements. I think it's good to step back and recognize what you're hearing there is you're hearing the cry of an aching father. You're hearing the cry of a father whose girls were victimized under his own nose and he didn't know it. There's nothing now he can do about it. My gut's a father. Can we trust in a God who executes judgment? You see what Randall Margraves is saying? How can we trust in a God who doesn't? How can we trust in a God who doesn't? who doesn't work to make right the wrongs of this world, who would dare to turn a blind eye to sin, who would make light of all the pain and the suffering we see. And yet as much as we know we need the justice of this God, we also loathe it. We hide from it because we know that his uncompromising perfection and purity, it exposes us, it reveals us, it condemns us before the plumb line of God's word we don't stand a chance. But again, that's why God sent his own plumb line, the word made flesh, into the world. We look to Christ. We look to him. Right? Our justice, it is limited. It is finite. Jesus is, is not. It's not limited. It's, it's not finite. So we look to him, to this one who will one day come back, and he will split the skies and make the whole earth his threshing floor. And friend, Amos is begging you to ask yourself, on that day, who will you be trusting in? Who will you be trusting in? Let's pray. Oh God, we come before you again. We come before you recognizing the words of this prophet. Oh God, they are heavy but we don't want to make light of them. We don't want to minimize them. We don't want to cheapen them with jokes and levity. God, you are coming, and in your judgment, yes, you are patient, but you are just, and you are determined. So God, we pray that all of us here, before your searing purity, which we know we need, we have to have it. Oh God, we pray that we would find shelter and shade in Christ. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.